Amen. As Paul tells us in uh, Romans 1, you and I and your neighbor and the rest of mankind, we are all without excuse. You look at the ocean's roar, you look at the mountains, you look at the sky uh, light up in the day and in the night, and they all declare the glory of God. I mean, I think God instills in us a, a innate desire to seek him and to want to know him more. And some people have denied themselves of that desire, uh, but we're all without excuse. You look out in this beautiful creation that God has made, and you cannot reasonably say that there is no intelligent being behind all of this, man. Uh, What a tremendous God, a, a beautiful creator that you and I serve. And so, as I look out uh, in our nation, the U.S., uh, I see that there is a concerning trend in our nation in the 21st century. And and this uh, trend has been put pen to paper, uh, put down in numbers. According to a study published by the Pew Research Center, uh, they do a number of different surveys to uh, get us an idea of the general health of the church. Um, And and according to a study published by the Pew Research Center, 58% of U.S. adults said that they pray on a daily basis in the year 2007. That surprised me. That's pretty encouraging that uh, more than half of U.S. adults, whether Christian or not, 58% of U.S. adults in the year 2007 say, whether they do or not may be a completely different story, but they say that they pray on a daily basis. Seven years later in 2014, that number dropped by 3% down to 55%. And so seven years, we saw a drop and 3% of the entire country are praying less and less to God. 3% of less people are praying on a daily basis to God. That's a pretty uh, stark rise there or decrease in just seven years. Incredibly, Only seven years after that, in 2021, that number dropped by 10% in seven years. It went from 55% in 2014 to in 2021, only 45% of U.S. adults say that they pray on a daily basis. That's insane. That, that amazes me. Even when I look at the trajectory uh, of our nation, you see some uh, of the downfall. Uh, that's still that number that shocks me. That means on average during the seven-year span, the percentage of U.S. adults who pray daily dropped more than 1% each year. It's still not amazed. Let's put some numbers behind these percentages. Rounding to the nearest million in 2014, there were 245 million U.S. adults. And then in 2021, there were 259 million U.S. adults. That means from 2014 to 2021, if we weren't to uh, account for the population increase, there are about 25 million less U.S. adults who prayed on a daily basis. And now the population from 2014 to 2021 of U.S. adults increased by 15 million. So even with the population increased, still 10 million less people in our one nation alone are praying, are no longer praying to God on a daily basis. 
A number of those would be people who used to pray in 2014 on a daily basis, but are no longer doing that in 2021. A number of these would be people between the ages of 18 through 24 who weren't U.S. adults in 2014, uh, but now that they are adults in 2021, they are not praying on a daily basis. Now, what would happen in a hypothetical world, what would happen if we continued down the same trajectory from 2014 to 2021? Well, if you continue down that same tra trajectory, by the year 2053, 0% of U.S. adults would be praying to God on a daily basis. Now, seldom do you ever see a statistic like this be linear over a 40-year period, and I don't think there's a way in the world uh, where we would see that hold true, where it'd be a linear uh, decline through a 40-year uh, period. But in a hypothet hypothetical situation, it shows the grave state that we are in as a nation, that the, this rate of decline is pretty rapid. If we continue at the same rate by 2053, There'd be zero people in our country of over 300 million people today who'd be praying to God on a daily basis. And so we have an issue at hand. This is a concerning trend that that, is, that has come to light for us this morning. The frequency of our prayer is something that we have to address as a church. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning as we close out our series on communion with God, a series all about prayer. We need to address the fact that more and more people in the country are praying less and less. And so in the midst of our society that is spending less and less time in prayer, we're going to go back uh, about 2,500 years through history and look at an incredible story of a man who was diligent and praying consistently to God. This man is called by some Belteshazzar. How many of you guys are familiar with Belteshazzar? Uh, a, a handful of you guys. Here in a minute, you guys, probably a handful of you will understand better who this guy, mysterious guy, Belteshazzar, uh, is with this funky name. But we can read more about this incredible man of faith in a, a great historical document uh, known as the scriptures, uh, God's word, the Bible. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, we can read about this awesome historical figure of faith from about 2,500 years ago in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, it can open up to the book of Daniel. If not, uh, the words will be projected behind me as well. And so to give you a bit of background history of what's taking place in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel takes place uh, during the exilic uh, period, during uh, the, this time and place where the Israelites, they're forced to live as exiles. If we rewind a bit from that we see this uh, unified nation of Israel, the God's chosen people, his nation, who were uh, under the rule of, you might recognize, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. It was a unified nation, 12 tribes of Israel. And then shortly after Solomon's reign as king, the kingdom uh, was divided in two. We had the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. And then uh, around the year 721 BC, uh, the, this foreign nation, Assyria, conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. So the nation of Israel was no longer a thing. And then about 150 years later, Judah was conquered uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon within the Chaldean 
Empire. And so when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, these two, th two southern tribes of Israel, he took with him a number of captives. And these people, these captives, they were exiles as they were forced to live in a different land. And so the book of Daniel mostly follows the story of four guys from this exile, four guys who were physically ripped from their homes in Israel, and they were forced to live over in the city of Babylon. The first three guys that the book of Daniel covers uh, heavily is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these were not their names assigned at birth. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these were their names with, that they were assigned to them when they were forced to live in Babylon. At birth, they were called Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But when they were forced to live in Babylon, these Babylonians, they gave them new names, new names uh, that, that they were named after the Babylonian gods that they had at that particular time. And so that's where we come up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, a handful of us are probably familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, being thrown into a fiery furnace to die simply because they would only worship God. They, they knew that, that God is a jealous God. He, he doesn't, uh, God doesn't want us worshiping other beings, other things as a God. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they only worship God. And because of that, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. So you can read all about that incident where they are thrown into this fiery furnace. And what happens? You'll have to uh, find out. You can read about that in uh, the book of Daniel, uh, in the first few chapters of Daniel. And so those are the first three guys that the book of Daniel covers a lot. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fourth guy that the book of Daniel follows is Belteshazzar, the guy that we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. Similarly, Belteshazzar was not his name assigned at birth. At birth, Belteshazzar was called Daniel. And many of you guys are probably a lot more familiar with the name Daniel in the Bible than the name Belteshazzar. Um, and, and Daniel, what was this uh, Jew living in Israel who was forced to live over in Babylon? And when he was over in Babylon, they gave him this new name named after the gods that they had. And for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure why, but today we commonly know uh, Meshach and Abednego by their Babylonian names, and, but we know Daniel by his Jewish or Hebrew name. Um, and, and so Daniel is the same guy as Belteshazzar. Um, that twist in there, maybe think that, hey, maybe there's more you can learn uh, through this story. As we're going to talk about a story this morning that many of you probably are familiar with in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, we read the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Now, in the book of Babylon, there, there are three kings that, that rule throughout this book. Those three kings are Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, a bit different than Belteshazzar, and Darius. Nebuchadnezzar was king during the Chaldean reign when, he, when they came and conquered the two southern tribes of Judah. And it appears Darius was king over the region during the Persian rule. If you remember uh, King Cyrus from your history books, it appears Darius was ruler during the rule of uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia. In the book of Daniel, when you look at the book of Daniel, there's 12 chapters. It's commonly split into two different parts. The first half, chapters one through six, the majority of it is historical narrative, where, where these are historical things that, that took place throughout uh, the, the time, the history of time, where chapters seven through 12, they consist mostly of these different visions that Daniel has. And so today we're, we're going to be in chapter six. So these are really the last events in the life of Daniel. A bit confusing because we're only halfway through the book, 
but, but some of the last events in the life of Daniel that are recorded in the scriptures. And we're going to read all about that this morning. So in Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it reads, It pleased Darius, that was the third king of the city of Babylon at that time, it pleased Darius the king to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should, should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. And this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So what we see here is that Daniel, he, he is king of, of this region, whatever that region was. And he set up 120 satraps uh, who served under him. A satrap is essentially a governor, someone that would rule a particular uh, region or area. Very similar to what we see in our government today. You have a president and you have the, these 50 uh, other uh, governors uh, governing their local areas. And so here, the, Darius is king. He had 120 guys working underneath him as government officials. And then of these 120 government officials, there were three people who were put in charge of these 120 officials. So there's Darius, who, who was the king, who, who had the power and authority in this region, then the three high officials, and then the 120 satraps or the 120 governors. And Daniel, he was one of these three high officials, one of these three guys who had the most power other than Darius himself. And Daniel was distinguished above the other satraps and the other high officials, so much so that Darius was, was going to set the whole kingdom under the footsteps of Daniel. He's going to put the whole kingdom in Daniel's charge. If you read through the first six chapters of Daniel, you see the historical narrative aspect of this story. You see that Daniel was already very highly esteemed by Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, uh, the two kings who were put in place before uh, Darius. And now with King Darius, Daniel ha has gained a reputation uh, for himself again or still. And he's about to be put in charge of the entire kingdom. This is a pretty special guy, Daniel. They, they recognize that they, he had a special spirit within him. And so we continue in, in this story. We see in verse four, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. <clears throat> then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so what we see here is we have these other two high officials, 100, 120 other governors. They see that Daniel is a special guy. They, they see that he is put in charge of these governors. He has the most distinguished one amongst these three high officials. And they're looking at them with eyes of jealousy. They want what Daniel has, and so they want Daniel out of his position. Man, jealousy is such a powerful motivator, and it's a powerful, bad motivator. It is not a good motivator by any means. Uh, we have to uh, be—actually, let me rewind on that. There, there are good senses of jealousy. God is described as a jealous God, as God doesn't like it when— other people worship other gods. So I'll backtrack and not saying that there's never a good, uh, jealousy, never a good motivator. But here's certainly not a good motivator. We have to be careful of the influence that jealousy can have over us. God warns us of this uh, when he commands us not to covet what others have. 
And so the, these other high officials, these other satraps, they couldn't uh, find anything against Daniel to, to put him into trouble uh, as he was a faithful man. He was faithful to Darius, the man in whom he served as his uh, loyal servant. And so all of a sudden they realize that, hey, maybe there's one thing we can get him in trouble with. The only thing that we could possibly think to get him in trouble with is his connection with the law of his God. And so they recognized that Daniel was a special man. Daniel is not really one of them. Daniel's not from this region. Daniel was from a faraway land, and his land, his group of people, they were conquered by our people, the Babylonians. And now he has come over here as an exile, and now he's worked his way all the way to the top. But Daniel still serves the God of his people. He still serves the God of the Old Testament. He still serves Yahweh, the God that you and I serve today. And so the, the Chaldeans, the, the, these people, these Persians, they were going to use this against Daniel. And so they, they conspired a plan. We see that plan in verse 6. And verse 6 of chapter 6 says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any God or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And so the, the officials and the governors, they went to the king and flattered him, suggesting that he should sign a decree that forced the citizens only to pray to Darius. Now, in this uh, culture that Daniel was living in, it was very much a polytheistic culture. There, there are many different gods that the people worshipped. And one of the many different gods that the people would worship, they would often worship uh, and pray to the ruler himself. And so here... These other high officials, these other satraps, these other governors, they come to King Darius flattering him and saying, King Darius, you are so great, man. You got to come up with this fabulous rule that for 30 days, nobody can pray to any other God except to you, O King Darius. And so uh, King Darius uh, considers that and King Darius, he signs the document and injunction and the punishment if someone were to pray to any other God for the next 30 days, they'd be thrown into the den of lions. And so how would Daniel respond? A man who is known to faithfully serve his God, Yahweh, our heavenly father. How would Daniel respond to this outrageous rule? On well, verse 10, we see that answer. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So with this new rule, this rule, if you pray to any God for these next 30 days, you're going to be thrown into the den of lions it says Daniel knew that. He knew this document had been signed. He knew that if he were to get down on his knees and pray to God, he knew that he'd be thrown into the den of lions. And what did he do? He got down on his knees, 
He's praying to God three times a day. What a beautiful, beautiful picture, a beautiful image of a man who was faithful to his God, whose God performed many wonders in and through the life of Daniel. And Daniel was not about to betray his God. He was not about to stop praying to God. It says that he had prayed three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This was an already established practice of Daniel. It mentions uh, that Daniel uh, went up into his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed. Around uh, the time of Daniel, or shortly thereafter, the Jews composed a book called the Talmud. The the Talmud was was, uh, essentially a commentary on the Bible that the Jews had, which would have been the Old Testament. It was a very sacred book for the Jews. And it's taught in the Talmud that uh, the Jews were to pray facing Jerusalem. This was uh, written in the Talmud, written around or shortly after the time of Daniel, is likely practiced beforehand by the Jews as well. And so Daniel was likely following the custom of his people about being intentional, praying, facing the city of Jerusalem. Some people trace this custom back to the time of Solomon. You can read in 1 Kings 8.30, shortly after Solomon built the temple, Solomon prays to God and says, listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Now the temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, so the temple wasn't even standing here in Daniel 6, but Daniel prayed facing Jerusalem regardless. And so three times a day, Daniel got on his knees and he faced Jerusalem and he was praying to God is praying to God, knowing the consequences of what he was doing. And he had the window open as as he was facing Jerusalem. And so what happens next? Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The, the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And so these others, guys, these other officials who persuaded the king to, to write this decree, write this command specifically for the purpose of getting Daniel in trouble, they go and they see Daniel praying on his knees, praying to God. They bring this to the attention of the king and the king is distraught by it. The king, apparently, he loves Daniel. He, he, was, he was about to put the kingdom in Daniel's hands. That was his guy. That was his guy. 
But his other officials, these other governors, they, they tricked Darius into this. And so they got Daniel into trouble. And so Darius, he tried to get out of it, but they reminded him that that king, listen up, any injunction, any command that you sign, that cannot be revoked. We cannot take that back. And so with, with much grief, Darius, a man who loved Daniel very much, gave the command to throw Daniel into the den of lions. And what happens with Daniel in the den of lions? We have to read that on your own time. Uh, leave a cliffhanger for you there. Uh, read, it, read the rest of this story um, later today or throughout the rest of the week. Uh, finish out chapter 6, and you'll see what happens to Daniel as Daniel directly defied this command that this king gave. But we're going to stop here in the story, and you do your studying yourself. Studying God's word is a practice that we all need to instill day in and day out on a consistent basis. But as far as prayer goes, our our focus of discussion this morning, we can draw immense inspiration from Daniel. Daniel was put into a very about to be put in charge. The king was ready to put the kingdom into Daniel's hands. And Daniel, he put that power and authority that's been granted to him, he put it on the line by praying to God. And not only did Daniel put his position as the chief official on the line, but he also put his own life on the line as well. The start of verse 10 signifies that Daniel knew the document had been signed. And so it's not like Daniel prayed to God as he always did. He says, Jamie, can you give me a bottle of water? Thank you. It's not like uh, Daniel prayed to, uh, to God and he was surprised that he, was gonna, that he was thrown into the den of lions. Daniel knew this was coming. Daniel knew the rule. I'm sure Daniel was very familiar with the fact that any command that the king signs cannot be revoked. I believe that Daniel knew in his heart, if he got down on his hands and knees, that he's going to find himself into the den of lions. And so not only did he, he put his power, uh, position and authority at stake in danger, but he put his own life on the line as well. He prayed to God knowing he was breaking the rules. And here we are living in a country for the time being at least, where we have the freedom to pray to God. And what do we find in our country? We find that there are 10% less of us who are praying on a daily basis than there were seven years ago. And that can be pretty discouraging to hear. To hear of this great act of faith from Daniel. Thank you. Hear this great act of faith of Daniel when his life was on the line, simply praying to God. And we live in a nation, in a country where we have the freedom to pray to God. And yet what, what do we see? We see that Daniel stayed through with this practice of praying to God. And yet we see the Americans in general, 10% less of us are praying on a daily basis. And that can be pretty discouraging. But that brings forth a great opportunity for us. We have a unique opportunity to be the light in this world of darkness. We have an opportunity that is very similar to Daniel. 
Again, I'm not going to story uh, the story of Daniel in the den of lions. I want you guys to finish the story on your own. But because of Daniel praying to God, we see that at the end of this, Darius made a new rule that everyone was to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. See, Daniel was living in a world of darkness, a world where it was illegal for 30 days to pray to God. And how did Daniel respond to living in a world of darkness? Daniel responded by being the light that the world needed. And when he was the light that the world needed, we see that the king then made a rule that said, everybody must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, before his God that he was praying to, knowing that he was going to be thrown into the den of lions. So the good news is in the fact that less people in our country are praying to God is that we can more easily stick out and we can more easily be the light of the world like Daniel very much was in his day and age. You know, we have a call to stick out. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, a church that existed in modern day Greece. He wrote two letters to this church that we know of. And in his first letter in chapter 5, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, he instructs this church to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, and I don't think that means we are to get, our, get on our knees and pray to God 24 hours every single day. Uh, you wouldn't uh, be able to survive on a means like that. If all you did every single day of your life, 24-7, was to get on your knees and pray to God. So I don't think that's what Paul was saying when he's saying pray without ceasing. What I do think it means is that this practice of praying, it must be consistent in our lives, and we aren't to give up on it just like 10% of our country has done over the last seven years. We are instructed to pray without ceasing. And for the time being, that has made so, so easy for us. This task, this command, this instruction to pray without ceasing, there have been thousands, millions of people throughout the time of history where this task would have been hard to accomplish, where they would be putting their lives on the line just like Daniel. But you and I, we are so blessed. We live in a country for the time being where it cannot be any easier. It cannot be any easier to pray without ceasing. We've been dealt a good hand and we need to take advantage of that. We need to draw inspiration from Daniel who did not stop praying to God, even when it was made illegal and his life was on the line. Who knows? Someday, maybe in our nation, praying may become illegal. But if that day comes, we are, not to, uh, we, we are to pray without ceasing. We're to follow the, the inspirational uh, example that we have in Daniel. And so we've all got to develop a habit and a routine of prayer in our life as we are to follow the command, follow the instruction of praying without ceasing. And as you seek to instill this instruction of praying without ceasing, I encourage you to remind yourself of the story of Daniel, the story of a man who put his life on the line as he did not stop praying to his heavenly father. So pray without ceasing. There it is. This is, this is communion with God.
Communion with God, uh, we, we define throughout this series, the establishment of an intimate relationship with God through the intimate exchanging of our thoughts and feelings. And throughout this series, Communion with God, we covered a number of topics. First, we talked about what prayer is and why pray in the first place. We pray so that we can grow closer to God. That's the primary purpose of our prayer. Our primary purpose in prayer is not to treat God like a genie and for him to grant our every request. That's one of the cool blessings of being a prayer word, being of someone who doesn't stop ceasing, is that God will grant you your request time and time again. But that's not the primary purpose of our prayers. Our primary purpose is to continue to grow closer to God. And second throughout this series, we talk about how to pray. How do you pray to an all-knowing and an all-powerful God? You can communicate with him similar to how a child would communicate with a loving father. There needs to be an element of respect and an element of love. We have to respect God in all of his glory and all of his power, and we love God for all that he has done for us. And as far as what to say, what do you say to an all-knowing God? You can follow the helpful guide, Acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, you adore God for who he is. Confession, confess your sins before God. Thanksgiving, thank God for all that he's done for you. And supplication, make your requests uh, known before God. Not every prayer has to follow this systematically. Adoration, then confession, then thanksgiving, then supplication. I would add, nor should every prayer follow this systematically. Uh, Think about your uh, communication with your spouse, with your father, your children, a a loved one. You don't have, like I'm guessing, I'm assuming you don't have a set rubric uh, of the way in which you talk with your loved ones. Um, And similarly, the the closer we draw to God, the less we can need to rely on on a rubric or a God like this, and it becomes much more naturally. But this system, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, these are four elements that should be evident in all of our prayers, the, the collection of our prayers. And so after we spent a week uh, talking about all the things that we can say to God in prayer, then we spent a week discussing how sometimes the best thing we can do in our prayers to God is to simply say less. When I think about uh, my two kids, Ezra and Ayla, some of my most favorite moments with them are when they simply rest in my presence without saying a word. And God desires the same from us. We, We look through a couple of commands throughout the scriptures where we're commanded, we're instructed to be silent before the Lord. I think that's because God wants us to enjoy simply being in his presence. So sometimes the best thing that you need for for your prayer life is to simply say less and be silent before the Lord. And then we discussed how uh, we, we looked at the power of prayer. We saw that God changed his course of action due to Moses' prayer. I love this story uh, where God was going to wipe out the Israelites, but after Moses prayed for them, God relented of this disaster. And we see that prayer makes a difference. So much so that some, myself included, would suggest that you can change God's course of action through prayer. That's what I see in the story of Moses. And God was going to destroy the Israelites. Moses prayed to God. And so God relented of his anger. Prayer makes a difference. And finally today, we discussed the importance of praying without ceasing. And we can draw inspiration from Daniel, who did not cease to pray even when his life was on the line. Prayer is such an important topic. Prayer is at the very heart of our relationship with God. It's how we communicate with our heavenly father. 
What would a relationship be with no uh, communication? It would not be a, a very uh, good relationship. And so prayer is the very heart of a relationship with God, and we all need to implement a consistent basis of prayer in our lives. And if we do, I'm positive that God is going to bless you, and you'll continue to grow closer to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful resource, this tool, this instrument that you've given to us that any day, any time of day, we can draw near to your throne, have direct access to you, to the author of life. God, I just pray that we don't take this immense blessing for granted, but that we take advantage of it that we use it day in and day out. We follow the examples of Moses and Daniel who sought you in prayer. God, I just pray that you help us in the midst of a world full of distractions. You help us keep our minds on the things that are important. Keep our mind on you. Keep our mind on your son and our mind on the hope of your coming kingdom. So God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.